All right, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that this morning, especially you'll turn to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be covering a vast amount of material, and I know you think that for me that means like three or four verses. We are going to try to get through a whole lot more than that, so much so that we can't even get it on the screen. So power up your devices, open up your Bibles. I have mine here too. I know this is not what you would say, well, this is not the Bible. This is printed off. I've just gotten to a place in my life that if I want to be able to read what's on the page, I would have to have a Bible that weighed about 80 pounds if the print is going to be large enough for to see. So I have Mark uh, chapters 1 through 6 in front of me, and so that's what we're going to be covering. One of the things that I've loved about our class uh, on Sunday morning as we've kind of trudged through Mark a little bit slower pace is just to see some of the different ways that the gospel writers choose to, to focus on different themes. And, and for Mark, for sure, this idea, this sense of, of Jesus being a, a person of, of great action, right? You have, uh, in Matthew, you have the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, you have the Sermon on the Plain. You have all these teachings. But in Mark, we're going to get to a little section in four, but for the most part, we see Jesus as a man of action. Now, another thing that Mark really loved to do is he loved to just instill this sense of urgency. And does anybody know what's the one word we hear over and over again in Mark referring to urgency? Immediately, 41 times in the very small gospel of Mark, he uses the word immediately. In fact, he uses it four times more than the rest of the New Testament combined. 80% of the, the word immediately is found in Mark's gospel as opposed to 20% in the rest of the New Testament. He really wants you to get this idea of over and over again, immediately it happened, immediately it happened. Even sometimes uh, he would say at once, or even the small word at end is used so many times because Mark just wants to connect one activity to another to another. But there's also something else about Mark that I love. Jesus compels and even demands a response. That's what we see more than anything else throughout Mark, is that every time Jesus does something, Mark wants to point out how people react and respond to Jesus. And so we're going to kind of get to that in a little bit. But what we're going to do for the first few minutes, we're just going to look through the first six chapters of Mark as fast as I can. I'm afraid to tell you how many different uh, uh, verses I've identified because it might make you look at your watch. You know what? I don't care. I've identified 35 different responses in basically the first five chapters and then one in the sixth. And so we're going to go quickly. Jesus is going to be baptized and God is going to start off with the responding and he's going to do it in dramatic fashion. The spirit of, of, uh, is going to come down like a dove and you remember what God says. This is my son whom I love with you I am well pleased. And that's how Mark starts off as Jesus demands a response and he acts in such a way that even God the Father has to tell people verbally he says hey this is my son and I'm really pleased but I want you to know there's 
where people aren't as pleased with Jesus as God is. Jumping down just a few verses in verse 17, there's going to be two right in a row. Jesus is going to see a guy named Simon and his brother Andrew, right? And they're going to be out where? On the the boat, out on the lake. They're fishing. Jesus says, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. You're going to be fishers of men. And what is their response? At once. They left their nets and followed him. Didn't put up their tackle. They just, they left everything. They dropped it and they followed him. Number three, when he'd gone a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in the boat and they're preparing their nets, right? Maybe they're thinking, Peter and Andrew are gone. There's more fish for us. And without delay, Jesus called them, And they left their father in the boat. They left their livelihood, they left their dad in the boat, and they followed Jesus. That was their response. A few more verses down, verse 23. Just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of So we've had God already respond, say, This is my son. I love him. I'm pleased with him. We have some crazy fishermen leaving their nets and their dad to follow Jesus. And now we have this demon who should have no credibility. But it seems like in Mark, the people with the most credibility might just be the demons because they have no doubt who Jesus is. And they respond over and over again. They respond in this case in fear and in reverence. Over and over again. You're going to see that. And in verse 27, all the people were amazed. And they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and one with authority? He even gives order to impure spirits and they obey him. You're going to hear that thought again several times just in these first few chapters. Jesus demands a response. Now we go down uh, to verse uh, 35 in the first chapter. One of my favorite verses in Mark. Very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house and went to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, we've all talked about that over and over again, but, but I love this. Simon and his companions went to look for him. He was gone. He was gone long enough that they said, where's Jesus? Finally, when they found him, what did they say? Everyone is looking for you. Now, I'm, I know that might be exaggerating just a bit. I don't know how many people would have been in the world at that time, and so I don't think it's fair to say that everyone, but for their circle of people, They wanted to get closer to Jesus. They were looking for him. And then a man with leprosy came to him and he begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I think this is such an important response. And even though it seems like a really small one, he did a couple things that are really, really important. He came to Jesus and he believed 
And you could question, well, how much did he really believe? Maybe he didn't believe that Jesus wanted to heal him, or maybe he didn't believe that he was good enough to be healed, but he still brought what he had to Jesus. Okay, we're still going along. Number eight, this is in verse 45. Instead, he went out, and this is after he's been healed, and Jesus says, don't go tell anybody. Instead, he went out and he began talking freely. And as a result, Jesus had to go off and be in in lonely places. But people still went looking for him. What was the response? He couldn't stop talking about Jesus. Don't you hate it when people accuse you of that? Doesn't that just irk you? Like, like, like when they say, I wish you would just stop talking about Jesus. Can you talk about anything else? Talk about the weather. Talk about the cow. Let's not talk about the cow. We're not talking about the cowboys. Okay. But there's all these other, you know, talk about what's going on with politics, what's going on with school. I mean, so many other things. And they say, you know what? I just really wish you would stop talking about Jesus. It's too much. I know it must bother you a lot. But, but I'm just telling you, don't give up. And, and if you've never been accused of talking too much about Jesus, I dare you to start talking about him enough. People might just say, you know what? You're talking about this Jesus guy a whole lot. I j- I'm just curious. I don't know what would happen. But that's interesting. Okay, number nine. We finally made it to chapter two. And I'm almost out of time. Okay. They gathered in such a large number that there was no room left not even outside the door, and he preached to him. The response is that obviously we see this. Jesus is a man of action. More and more people are coming to Jesus. And then what, can, what happens, number 10, there's a group of people, these guys say, we, our response to Jesus is we're going to grab our friend, we're going to carry him on a mat, we're going to take him up a roof, we're going to tear a hole in the roof, And we're going to lower him down in front of Jesus. That was their response. That they were so desperate or or so faithful that they believed that Jesus could do that. That they tore up some stranger's house. Now, of course, after Jesus looks down at him, he says, your sins are forgiven. And then we have one of these unsavory responses going to be uh, from these religious folk, and they're going to say, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God, al- but God alone? They despise Jesus, and they think he's a liar. That's, that's their response to Jesus. Verse 12, he got up, he took up his mat, and he walked out in full view of all of them. This is after Jesus has healed the paralyzed man. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And if there's any response to to Jesus that I absolutely love, it's after having an encounter with Jesus, the response of the people around was, we have to praise God. I just Love that. You know what? Not all responses are good, but we have another one right here. Jesus is going to do something very similar that he did with Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He's going to be walking around in 2.14. He's going to walk past a booth. 
And in that booth is a guy named Levi. We also know him as Matthew. For a living, he collects taxes. He's a terrible guy. Let's just call it what it is. Matthew is a terrible guy. And Jesus says, I want you to follow me. And Matthew does something really, really crazy. He gets up. He leaves the booth. This very lucrative job that he has. A job that basically he had to sacrifice everything for. Because in getting this job, he would have lost friends. He possibly could have been disowned by his very own family. Because nobody wanted to have anything to do with Rome or somebody who would side with Rome. And that's exactly what Matthew did. He had given everything up to get this job. And now he was giving up this job, which was everything. And he followed him. So Jesus is now going to go have a dinner with some more of, of Matthew's friends. And so he's eating at the house with tax collectors and sinners. And there they followed him. Think about this. We're going to see this over and over again. There's only two directions that people go when it comes to Jesus. There's only two. One is following and the other is not. That's the only two responses to Jesus. And then we see down in verse 16, teachers of the law, poor Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors. They asked, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They basically mock and question Jesus. In fact, in other cases, we're going to see if Jesus knew the kind of person this was, he wouldn't have anything to do with her. They're, they're basically saying he's guilty by association. And they wouldn't have anything to do with him. Okay, verse 24. Pharisees said to him, look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? This is after he and his disciples were picking grain. They accuse him and they indict, indict Jesus of breaking the Sabbath, which of all the that were made, remembering the Sabbath and keeping it holy is one of those laws. But they had these addendums that they wanted to add and said, okay, how do you actually remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And they said, well, here's what you can and can't do. And they made up these crazy rules. Some of them which include that if somebody who is not one of your people, if they're not a Jew and a wall falls down on them and it crushes them and they're screaming out, please help me! And you look down and say, sorry, Sabbath, I can't help. God would not want me to help a person who is hurting. And they're going to accuse Jesus of breaking that same Sabbath. Okay, we've already made it down. We're nearly halfway through chapter 3. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. I would love to see Jesus heal at any time. Jesus show up on Sunday and work miracles. And they're like, yeah, no, 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 no. You, you can't do it on the Sabbath. We don't allow that. That's not really good at all. And so they hate him, and they're just looking for a way to trap him. You either follow Jesus or you don't. This is 
Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And this just bugs me to no end. We talked about this a little over a month ago in our class. But here we have these guys at the height of their hypocrisy. They go to Jesus and they say, you can't heal on the Sabbath. And they get so mad that they are breaking one of the laws that they have created of what you can and can't do on the Sabbath that they decide that they are going to plot a way to murder him. Healing on the Sabbath, bad. Assassination, good. I, like, where, like, how does this... There's only two ways to go in response to Jesus. Just a few verses later, after Jesus is already uh, being looked at so people can kill him, the very next verse, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed him. They wanted to follow Jesus. There were some impure spirits in verse 11. They fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. They bowed down. Remember what our word worship means? Worship is just the idea of bending the knee. These impure spirits acknowledged who Jesus was. Now Jesus is going to appoint the twelve in that next paragraph, but starting in verse 20, we're going to have three right next to each other where we see these responses that people have to Jesus. Then, they, then Jesus entered the house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were even able to eat. That's how many people came in. And they didn't have very good boundaries. He's trying to eat with his disciples. They won't even allow that because they're just, just coming into the room. Now this is another one that's a head scratcher. We looked at this a few weeks ago. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said what? He is out of his mind. Now later on we're going to find out how many brothers Jesus has. We know that he has at least four brothers. We know that he has at least two sisters. They name the four brothers. They say, well, his sisters are here, so there has to be at least two. He's at least one of seven children. His dad is presumably no longer alive. We never hear from him after 12 years of age. But Mary's around. And in a minute, Mary's going to show up. And for all the good things that I love about Mary, it seems like she was a part of the group that says, we've got to stop him. He is out of his mind. Have you ever heard somebody say that about you? Some of you guys are laughing like, oh yeah, I get it every day. But here we go. His own family, the response, and it's going to change. Maybe they're not really sure. His cousin John, at times, is not really sure. Jesus, what's going on? Are you really the one? But there's no doubt a response. And then the 23rd time that we notice that is the teachers of law who came down and they said he's possessed by Beelzebub. And so this is, this is hard. We have, we have the no-gooders that come in, they want to see Jesus so bad that they will crash the dinner to see him. 
And then we have other people who say he's out of his mind and it is because of Beelzebub that he's able to do these things. Chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd had gathered around him so large that he got into the boat and he had to sit in it while people sat on the shore. That the crowd keeps growing and growing and growing. This is the, the point in Mark where we do get a bit of his teachings. And so we'll jump down all the way to the end of chapter 4. This is Jesus. He's out on the boat. There's the winds and the waves. There's this seismic storm that comes up. This squall that comes up on the land. Jesus is in the bottom of the boat. He's sleeping. And they wake him up. And they ask this crazy question, don't you care if we drown? What is the response of the disciples at this time? I, I identified two responses in, in the, those actions right there. Help me out, what do you think? Fear and anger? They're afraid of the waves. Okay? And they're angry at Jesus. Why do they wake Jesus up? Because they're afraid? But why Jesus? Because they believe He can. Their response is, we believe that you can do it, but we just don't know that you care enough. And that was the response then, and for many of us today who have been in that figurative boat going up and down with the waves crashing in, we cried out the same way. They were terrified after he's calmed the storm, and they asked each other, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. So now we have the next story. It's a demon-possessed man, quite possibly the most physically intimidating man in all of the New Testament. He cuts himself with he breaks through chains. No one can subdue him. He sees Jesus. He runs to Jesus. He falls at the feet of Jesus. And he cries out and he begs and he shouts. That's the response. Then Jesus is going to heal him. People are going to come out. They're going to see the demon-possessed man. He's now clothed. He's in his right mind. And they tell Jesus, get out of here. We want you to leave. Don't be close to us. And the guy who's now in his right mind does just the opposite. They beg, please get away from us. And he begs, please, can I go with you? There's only two responses. Then we have the story of this synagogue ruler named Jairus. He's rich, he's powerful, he falls at the feet of Jesus. And a little bit later, we're going to have a woman who she's coming from the opposite direction. She has none of what Jairus has. Instead of coming in the front, she sneaks up the back because she believes her response to this guy named Jesus is she's going to risk whatever life she may possibly have, which is basically her breath. That's all she has left. She is now risking that to go up as an unclean person and touch this rabbi because she believes that he'll do it, that he can heal her. And the response is, after she's healed, he stops. She tells him the whole story after she falls at the feet of Jesus. And then he ends up going to Jairus' house. I just, I love this story so much. And people come out and they say, it's too late. Your daughter died. And part of me has to be thinking, Jairus is like, if you hadn't stopped, 
we would have made it in time. And Jesus said, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. And the response? They laughed at him. They laughed at Jesus. He sent him out of the house. He raises the girl back to life. And their laughter in verse 42 is turned into astonishment. Because immediately the girl stood up. And then we have chapter 6. Jesus is going to go to his hometown. He's going to teach in the synagogues. This is the last one. And they begin to ask, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Is he the carpenter? Isn't he Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't these his sisters here with him? And they took offense at him. The ones who thought that they knew Jesus, the ones who grew up, Jesus' name on their lips. They didn't believe him and they took offense at him. There's only two things to do with Jesus. You either go towards him and you follow him or you go away and you split directions. That's the only way to go. There's no middle ground. There's no, I'm kind of in with this Christian thing or I kind of go to church thing. It's like, it's either all or nothing. I want to close out with, with reading a, a short song that I was just uh, reminded of yesterday. I was at a retreat and they, they sang this song, and I absolutely love it, because there's some of you in here now says, I would follow Jesus, but like, like what do I have to offer? Why would he want me around? So I want to read this real quickly. And then it says, all my words fall short. I've got nothing new. How could I express my gratitude? those songs as often I do, but every song must end, and you never do. So I throw up my hands. And I praise you again and again. Because all that I have is a hallelujah. Now listen to this. And, and I know it's not much. But I've nothing else fit for a king. Except for a heart singing hallelujah. Whatever it is that you have you think that you don't have this morning. The one thing that you all have that God wants more than anything else is your heart. That's what He wants. That's what He's calling for. He, he, it doesn't matter about your brokenness, about your past, failed marriages, about your financial decisions, all the ruin and all the shame that you have in your life. He says, come to me, just give me your heart and follow me. You see, Mark wants you to know that there's only two ways to go with Jesus. You either give Him your heart or you walk away. And that's what God wants. Even brokenness, He says, just, just bring it to me. Because you have nothing else except for a heart singing hallelujah. Perfect.
week as you go out, choose to follow Jesus. Give Him your brokenness, your fear, your shame, and give Him your heart as we all sing together. Hallelujah. For a King who is worthy. This morning, I want to invite you to join us as we sing and celebrate a God who is worthy of our hearts. May we give them this morning. Please join me as we stand and sing.